We are in part one of a brand new series through a book that as I've shared with you, I've never preached in this church before and I'm scared out of my mind. This book is uh, very deep. It's way over my head and you will see that I'm feeling my way through it in anticipation and preparation for the message today. I have people, uh, a team uh, of ladies that gather commentaries for me and they hand it over to me just for the tiny portion we're covering today. It was 195 pages of 10 point font that I had to go through in examination to try to get my mind wrapped around what we're about to read. This book is powerful. What we are about to study is life transforming. And I think that you're in for a treat. I learned so much just in preparation for this message. And I hope that that comes across. We're in part one in our series through Hebrews entitled our faithful high priest. And I entitled this morning's message, a different sort of savior. So let's dive into it. The first list of new Testament books that was gathered and published as to be the new Testament was done in AD 170. It's called the Muratorian Canon. Canon merely means accepted group of books. In that list of New Testament books, the book of Hebrews does not exist. It is not in the list of the New Testament books. It was not accepted by the West until around 350 AD. 320 years after the death of Christ, it doesn't show up in the West as being legitimate as part of the canon. That's rather significant. What was the problem with the book of Hebrews that caused it to be held out for so long? In the East, they accepted things a little bit more readily in this area as well as authorship questions, but the West resisted it. Now, everyone knew that it was a book. Everyone knew that it was an important book. And it actually was referred to as a known book in AD 95 by Clement. So early on, everybody knew that there was a book to the Hebrews, which was the first title to it. And that's the one that's remained to this day. But they would not allow it to be accepted as the word of God until... Middle of the fourth century. Why? It all hinders around one issue. It has one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. That passage, it's funny, everyone's like, what is it? Right? <laughs> I'll tell you, we're not doing that today. We'll do that a little bit later. We're going to go through it in order. Here's what it is. It is one of the famous passages that is argued whether or not you can lose your salvation. In that passage, it says a phrase, something to the effect of, after having tasted of the Holy Spirit and what God has done in your life, to walk away from that, uh, you cannot then return back, is this idea. If you reject your salvation in Christ, you have no hope. If you're a believer and you walk away, that's the big argument, right? Now, we can all argue about what it means, and we're literally going to do that. We're going to have a big discussion about what it means when we get to that passage. But why is that significant enough to bump it out of the New Testament books? Because at that time, something significant was happening in the church, and it's called persecution. 
Persecution kicked off with Nero in AD 64, got really heated with Domitian in 95, and it began to pick up from there. Around that era, when they were trying to figure out what books should be included, when persecution was happening, some Christians bailed out on the Christian faith. Now, you can understand that if you're under intense persecution, some Christians caved. Well, then afterwards, they felt horrible about it, and they returned back in repentance to the church. But there were two groups that said, according to Hebrews, you're not allowed back in. You can't come back to church. You're doomed to destruction. It was Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Because of the abuses of that passage and the rejection of allowing people to even return to the church, they said, I don't want any part of it. I'm not going to include it in the canon. I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Until that heresy and difficulty calmed down, they didn't accept it. Make sense? All right, now let's dive into what we know about it. It is very important to get the background on any book that you study. If you've been with me for any length of time, you know I'm a big history guy. Got to understand the context and what's going on behind it. Why is that important? Let me give you a short analogy so that you'll own this. Uh, I have a couple different gentlemen that I correspond with in letter form. And I know that's weird to some of you that you would use snail mail. I get it. However, I use snail mail with only three gentlemen in my life. Let's say one of those letters gets into your mailbox and your mailbox is actually that thing that's out in front of your house. I don't know if you remember what that's for. All right. Now it just fills with junk mail and bills, but it used to have letters. Okay. Now let's say you get one of my letters and it doesn't have any indicator as to who it's to. So you assume it's to you. And it says this. Hey, it's been a little while. This is Pastor Lance. I just wanted to connect in with you again and make sure that you're doing okay. And you're thinking, well, that's really nice. Lance never sends me letters. Well, that's really sweet. And I, and you go on to read it and it says, I just wanted to check in, make sure you're safe. Are you doing okay? Because I'm a little bit worried about your safety in general. I want you to be very, very careful who you associate with. I want you to be very careful and make sure that you watch your back at all times. Now you're getting nervous. You're like, well, why are you warning me about safety issues? What do you know, right? And then I say things like, and here's the deal. I believe that as much as you are frustrated with the boredom of your life and things going the same every day, it's almost like monotony, I want to remind you that God has given you a special gift during this time in your life, a time that you can draw near to him relatively unhindered. So here's what, I re- here's what I would suggest to you. You have a lot of time on your hands. And you're sitting there going, I what? What do you mean I have a lot of time on my hands? And what I want you to do is I want you to spend no less than an hour in the Word of God every day. I want you to take advantage of this period of your life. And if possible, do it hour upon hour. Read books at a time. And I want you to make sure that you spend quality time silently in prayer to God every day and make the best use of this respectfully and loving yours pastor Lance now you get that letter and you're just like man that is a weird letter what does that mean what is he trying to tell me I don't get that what are my friends messed up what's going on the three men that I correspond with in snail mail are all incarcerated they're all in jail they're all in prison you just got one of their letters Does it make sense now? Of course it does. I want you to be careful. Are you feeling 
peaceful? Are you safe? Be careful who you make friends with. Does that make sense if you're in jail? Yes. Does it make sense if you're not in jail? Not as much. Does that make sense? Now, it also, I was saying, you have this special time in your life when though you're, you're bored with monotony. Why? Because you're doing the same thing every day. For years on end, these gentlemen, some of them have been in for a long time. And you have an opportunity to spend time with God almost unhindered for large blocks at a time. Why? Because you're not doing anything else. Of course you can spend an hour with the Lord when you don't have anything on your schedule. That only makes sense if they're incarcerated. If you grab somebody else's mail, you need to know the context or it doesn't make sense. That's why we study what we're about to study. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We have no idea. It is the only New Testament book that we cannot track who wrote it. There are guesses. As a matter of fact, throughout history, there have been three primary guesses. Paul, Barnabas, and Apollos. The first one that was ever attached to this was the Apostle Paul. They thought, well, you know what? Paul writes everything. He probably wrote this too, okay? So we're going to go ahead and throw his name on it. And it's funny that his name kind of stuck with it almost for the first 1,200 years, even though most people agree it doesn't even sound like Paul. It's not written like Paul. It's not mostly like any of his other letters other than kind of a general groove. So why did it stick for so long? When they were trying to get it included into the New Testament, they said one of the requirements was that it was written by an apostle. They needed a name that was attached that was an apostle. So they allowed Paul's to hang on to it to get it into the New Testament, even though they had serious doubts whether or not it was him. Why were they doubting it? Because even in the passage we're going to study this morning, it says in the book of Hebrews that the author says to the effect, I was not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Well, that negates Paul because Paul did see Jesus on the road to Damascus in person. It cannot be the apostle Paul. Other people argue, well, maybe it is, maybe it is. By the Reformation, remember Martin Luther and all that, the big revolution against the Catholic Church? After the Reformation, all the scholars dropped Paul as being an option. That left us two others, Barnabas and Apollos. Now, why would Barnabas be... A possibility. Everybody remember who he is? He was a, a buddy of Paul, and he helped Paul kind of with a, with a right hand of encouragement. He brought him into the church. Remember all that? Why Barnabas? Barnabas was a Levite. He knew the temple backwards and forwards. The book of Hebrews is steeped in the Old Testament, and it talks about the sacrificial system and what happened in the temple as if somebody had inside scoop. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement, and the only description in the book of what it's supposed to be is a word of encouragement. Barnabas knew Paul. They had somewhat of a similar style. And Timothy is referred to in the book as being alive and a friend. Barnabas knew Timothy. So did Paul. So did Apollos. So is it Barnabas? Well, maybe Maybe Barnabas was from Cyprus. Cyprus was a, an island down there in the Middle East area, and they were known for a couple different things. One of them was that they were known as some of the best Greek-speaking people 
of that age. Why is that important? Because the book of Hebrews is the most brilliant Greek in all the New Testament. Remember how we studied Revelation and I told you it was kind of like John wrote it with a crayon, right? And it was all awkward and weird and so unscholarly. This is the polar opposite. This is a master of language in how it's written. The highest level Greek in all the New Testament. Is it Barnabas? Maybe. Is it Apollos? Now, why would it be Apollos? Apollos was a Jew. We know whoever wrote this was a Jew. Apollos was a Jew born in Alexandria. Alexandria had some of the best universities in all the known world. Highly educated. The things that we know about Apollos is that he was known as a master speaker. He was an orator. He was trained in the Greek way of talking, which is exactly the way this is written. He was a man very knowledgeable about scriptures, and he could split words and be able to say things in the most amazingly eloquent fashion, and he wowed people wherever he went. Is it Apollos? Every one of these men and other arguments for all have big dogs on their side. They all say, no, this guy's it. No, this guy's it. No, this guy's it, right? Here's the bottom line. One of the early church fathers, his name is Origen. He settled the matter when he said this, only God knows, moved on. That was it, all right? We have no idea who wrote this book, all right? We can say this, that the Holy Spirit wrote this book, regardless of who it was written through. Now, the other questions from this point forward are a bit easier. When was it written? Well, this one is kind of cool the way you can organize it out. If it was quoted first in AD 95, it had been written before that. We all got that? Pretty easy to understand. It was already accepted as a book in 95, so we got to back up quite a ways. However, there's a few other things. Timothy is still alive, so it can't be too much later. But then something else is very significant. A lot is written, as I mentioned, about the temple and the sacrificial system and about how Jesus is better than that. The number one argument the author should have been able to make was that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. He never makes that argument. That would suggest what? It hasn't happened yet. Now you've got to back up before 70. However, these people have already seen persecution. Persecution didn't start until Nero in 64 you now have a very tiny window of 64 to 70 of when this book could have been written. Let's guess 78 and lock it down. Good enough? All right. We made that up. Now, who did he write to? Without giving you all the arguments around, it appears that there was a group of Jews that were scholars. This is a scholar teacher to other scholars, seemingly a small group, maybe even a small church. It is believed that they are likely in Rome. Why in Rome? Because the only reference to people is, hey, the Italians say hi. All right, well, that's, that's about as close as we can get. And Clement mentions the book first, and he was in Rome. So that kind of makes sense, right? So we have a scholarly group of Jews in Rome who are being written to by someone they consider an authority in their lives. Why did he write it to them? Relationally, he wrote it because they were about to undergo more persecution. 
and they were tempted to bail out on this Christian thing and go back to Judaism. They were likely Jewish in heritage. So why would they go back to it? Because in the Roman Empire, Judaism was okay and Christianity was not. So if you're about to get persecuted for something, you're about to get put in jail for something, you're going to revisit it and say, maybe Jesus wasn't who I thought he was. Maybe I should go back to what I know that's safe. This author says, don't you dare. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament law. Jesus fulfilled all that. He is the fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for. And that's what this book is about. It's an encouragement to hang in there, to be faithful, to lock into Jesus. Uh, Theologically, it's to say Jesus is all that we need him to be and more. He is better than this. He's better than that. He's better than this, better than that. It's the better letter. Yeah. Now, it's not technically a letter, but you know what I mean? It's almost like a sermon written down, locked down, and he's reminding them, do not give up on your faith. Remain faithful because you know that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. That's the book of Hebrews. Now, we need to understand one last bit of information before we begin, and that is the culture of the time, or else you don't understand it. You have to get into the mind of the readers And then the mind of the author, and then you can apply it to your life. But he wasn't writing to Western, modern-day American Christians. He was writing it to ancient world, Jewish believers in another part of the world. Let's get into their head. In that day and age, there were two massive groups that influenced the mindset, Jews and Greeks. He's writing to Jews, so we have to talk about Jewish mindset. You can't understand the Hebrews book in New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. The Greeks had basically influenced the entire known world at the time, so what they thought was very important. The Jews believed this. God was untouchable. God was too big to be able to see. If you ever saw him face to face, you would just explode and die. There was no way for a wretched, sinful, messed up people to ever have personal dialogue, personal contact, interaction with a holy, righteous, perfect God. They knew that God had instituted a sacrificial system that would, once you are purified or cleansed of your sin or made perfect, for that moment you could go near God to some degree. But even the best of your group, the high priest, the most holy of all Jews at the time, the most ceremonially clean, could only go into the presence of God once a year and there was a rule that he was not even allowed to linger there he had to hurry in get it done get out you hang out too much in the presence of god he will kill you right that was their view the greeks believed though they did not believe in a one almighty god they believed that there was a perfect reality out there but we can never get in touch with it we live in the fallen messed up shadowy realm here This is the mindset of the time. 
So what do you think that the author of Hebrews is going to focus on when he talks about Jesus? He's going to talk about the fact that through Jesus we have access to God. Right? Wouldn't that make sense? Because that's kind of important. Your relationship with God is the most important thing about you. It's the thing that affects all others. Also, we need to understand that there was a problem in the sacrificial system, and that was this. If you keep on sinning, you keep on sacrificing. And when do we ever get a chance to get a break? Well, as soon as we stop sinning. When's that going to happen? Not. Not here. I mean, even the priests, the super holy guys, they're sinners. Man, everything's messed up. We're never going to stop killing animals and sacrificing them and trying to get closer to God. It's exhausting. So the author of Hebrews says, but it's not that way anymore. Last thing that you need to know about it. Because you cannot interact with God personally... They had to come up with a system by which we did interact with God. We knew, the Jews would say, that God interacts with mankind. But if he doesn't interact with us directly, the only way we can know anything about him or talk to him is through a mediator. In their world, at Jesus' time, it was angels. Angels were the mediator for everything. Let's think about it this way. Some of you have been in court right? Unfortunately, apparently I've been there as well because I know enough about it. Now in court, think about it this way. If you have something you want to hand to the judge, are you allowed to just walk up and go hand it to him? No. What do you do? You hand it to the bailiff. He then takes it to the judge. That's the rules. In the same way, they did not believe you could get anything to God. So you had to hand it to angels and angels will take it to him. They were the mediator, but it went beyond that. Not only was it that if God wanted anything done on earth, he had to do it through angels. There were angels for every element of the world. One rabbi said there are as many angels as there are blades of grass. Because there were angels for the sun, moon, stars, angels for the seasons and the times, angel of death to handle that piece. There was an angel to do this and an angel to do that. Every person had a guardian angel. They even said even though there was millions and millions, eventually they started naming them. Some of them even took it more extreme. Some, they would say, well, there's a, there's a uh, convicting angel, an angel that constantly brought up your bad stuff before God on a consistent basis. His name we now know as Satan. He would convict you every day except one day a year. What day was that? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, the day when sins are paid for. So he had to take that day off. Every other day, he could convict you and talk about all the bad stuff that you do. Now, they believed that angels were such a big deal that they were like God's uh, brainstorming team. That any time he ever wanted to do anything in the world, he had to talk it over with the angels. And they would argue with him. So, for example, one of their big beliefs was that when God decided to create man, the angels fought back about it. You can't create them. They're stupid. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And it was out of jealousy and they were arguing back and forth and God got so mad. He wiped out a whole section of them. These were all in their views. They believe that when God said, let us make man in our image, he was consulting with the angels. That is not what we believe. Now, some groups took it to another even more extreme. 
one of those groups wrote a little-known document called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everybody familiar with them? They are a group called the Essenes, and they were in Qumran. That group, and if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see how far they took this angel thing. Really extreme. They believed that Michael the Archangel was more powerful than the Messiah. They would have all sorts of weird beliefs about how angels interact and how powerful they are, and they might be the ones we should be focusing on. And All right. In light of that mindset, we see that the author of Hebrews needed to cut that short and say, hold on, you guys have this all wrong. In our world, you'd go, well, that's weird. Why is he getting so fixated on angels? Because that's where their head was at. All right? Final thing. In light of an untouchable God and over-focus on angels, the author wants to get one thing clear right up front. When Jesus Christ was here in the flesh, he claimed that God's angels were his. He claimed that the kingdom of God was his. He claimed that the elect of God were his. He claimed to forgive sins, which only God can do. He claimed the power to judge the world. He claimed to reign over the world, and he even accepted claims that he was God. Jesus was no ordinary man. Jesus was no ordinary good teacher. Jesus was more than that. The book of Hebrews is going to mess with your head and your mind until we sort it out. It's going to say stuff that's going to throw you way off. So we read it in light of the rest of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, that we don't go off on a tangent. So let me make one thing clear before we begin this book at all, and it's to fill in the blank in front of you. It is this. Jesus is nothing short of God. We are going to lock that down in our theology, and we will be immovable in that area. Jesus is nothing short of deity, of God. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, in the Bibles that you may be borrowing today, it's page 1001. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Anybody excited about this? Man, I'm stoked. This is good. All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. You're never leaving today. Here we go. (laughs) In Greek, verses 1 through 4 are all one sentence. But we're going to break it up into little pieces. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, as we open up your majestic word, we we ask that you would allow your son to come alive to us in a fresh new way. That we might have more confidence, that we may know you more, that we may love you more, that we may worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago means in the ages past, God spoke to our fathers. What fathers? The Jewish forefathers. You may say, that's not my father. Hold up. If you are a Christian today, your spiritual and religious heritage is in the Jewish people. They are your forefathers. They're not just any fathers. They're the fathers of the Jewish people. These are the patriarchs. These are the prophets. Long ago, in many ways, whether it was by vision or by dream or by audible call, whatever it was, God 
communicated to man. How did he do it? He did it through the prophets, men and women who heard downloaded information directly from the mouth of God and conveyed it to people. That was very cool and very kind of God to do. However, a shift occurred. Instead of being distant and communicating through fallible mankind to get his message across, God shifted one day. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There was a shift. In these last days, what do you mean last days? Well, the Jews viewed time in two ways. There was the present age, which was a drag. And there was the future age, which was awesome. That was it. So you can memorize that. Now, the difference between the two was that the Messiah would show up, the day of the Lord would hit, and then everything would be great after that. Anything after Messiah was known as the last days. So the author automatically locks in, says, as a Jew, you know, I'm telling you the Messiah has already arrived, and we are now in the last days. In these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, not angels anymore, not prophets, but direct through the son of God. That's kind of a cool thing. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. What do you mean he appointed? I thought Jesus was God. We'll get to that. I told you it's going to mess with your head a little bit, but it all comes around. Whom he appointed the heir, the involved one. An heir in the ancient world did not have to take it over once you died. They had access to all your stuff even while you were alive. The heir of all things through whom the son, he created the world. Do you realize that Jesus created the world? He created our reality. You go, wow, is that the only place it says that? Nope, it says it in probably seven different locations. One of the most popular is John 1.1. Jay Vincent came up and preached that to you not many weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Lest you have any mistake on who that is, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The only one to do that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ created our reality. The Father emanated, launched the concept, did it through the person of Jesus Christ, and the Word created our reality, which is being interacted with right now by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big deal. What you're going to hear me say over and over, and if you get anything from the message, it's that Jesus is a big deal. Right? He is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, the word can mean one of two things in Greek. It can either mean a reflection of, for example, when we look out, it looks like the moon is glowing. The moon actually has no light of its own. It's reflecting the sun, but we see it as glowing. It can mean that, though it doesn't likely mean that here. Its other meaning is that like a light bulb, the light is coming out from inside. It's emanating out of. That is the meaning here. The sun is the radiance, the emanating out, the shining forth of God's glory. What is glory? Glory is that which makes you look good. It delivers the greatest about you. The sun is the amazing representation of the greatest of God. 
He is also the exact imprint. In Greek, that is character. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Character means a stamp and then the imprint that it leaves. In our day and age, it would be like a photograph. If you took a photograph of me, I would look just like the photograph. It's an exact imprint, but it's deeper than that because it's the imprint of his essence, the nature of God. He is the full representation of the nature of God. That's a big deal. All right. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He didn't just create it. And you've got to go sci-fi here with me, right? He is now holding supernaturally the glue that connects our reality from bursting into chaos. The sun actively holds the existence together. Just as much as we cannot see gravity, but we know that it's holding us to a spinning ball. So too, in the same way, is Jesus, by the power of his nature, holding all of reality together. That's pretty amazing on a moment-by-moment basis. As far as how it impacts us, after making purification for sins, that means whatever was necessary to do with sin, Jesus did it completely. How do we know that? Because Jesus said three key words on the cross. It is finished. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down. Twelve other times in the New Testament, it will say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, on the throne of God. Why is that so important? Because it's showing you that he sits where God sits. It's showing you that he's at the right, the power side of what God is doing in the world. And it shows you that he's done so he can sit down. The priests of this world will never be able to sit down because there's always more sin to take care of. But when you are the son of God that died for the sins of the world once and for all, you get to kick back. Make sense? He doesn't always sit. He's not stuck to his chair. As a matter of fact, Stephen, when he was being stoned, the first Christian martyr called out and said in scripture in the book of Acts, behold, I see the son of the son of God standing. He was standing, interceding for Jesus is alive and active. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What do you mean become more superior to angels? Jesus is God. He's always been bigger and better than angels. Isn't he the commander of God's army? Isn't he the one that when he says jump, angels say how high? The answer to that is yes. So in what way did he become superior to the angels? Ah, you ready to track with me on this one? A little bit of a weird concept. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. When the second person of the Trinity, we know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, though he has always been... He didn't get born at the major. He entered into humanity. It's called the incarnation. He took on humanity. He took on flesh. He didn't just come down and play person and then go back to being God only. He took on and became fully man and fully God forever. He took on a new portion of his nature 
In doing so, he lived here and lived the perfect human life as an example of how we ought to live. Right? Can we all agree so far? In doing so, his humanity was real. And it was perfected and it was glorified. You go, what do you mean? I mean this. Do you realize we're going to get new bodies? Yes. Do you realize that if we are connected into Jesus Christ, we will hear phrases like, well done, good and faithful servant? Yes. Do you agree that we're going to go into heaven and there will be victory there? Yes. Do you believe that we are being changed into the nature of God and that sanctification will ultimately finish in glorification? Do you believe that? Yes. The Bible says in Revelation and other passages that when God is done with us, we are going to judge the angels. Why? Because we will be glorified. Jesus, in his humanity, did it all perfect, and he was the first one in humanity to be glorified by the Father. And in the humanity way, made that shift that we'll all make later. By being and having a name that was greater than all the angels. He will be the one that is glorified above the angels first and then we follow. However, as far as privileges and abilities, Jesus just got back what he's always had. Make sense? A little bit weird. All right, let's keep going. You're probably going to have to podcast that one. Here we go. Verse 5. Let's talk about how much Jesus is better than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. He never said that to angels. He said that the angels are sons of God as much as he said that we are sons of God, meaning that we've been created in his image. But he never called out one angel and said, you are my son. Anybody get bothered by the term son of God? Son of God is a little misleading. It made some sense in their culture, but it seems weird to us. When we hear son, we think little version of. Hey, I had a son. Oh, he must be a cute little version of you. So you got God and then baby God, right? (laughs) Jesus is like the little guy, right? That kind of follows him around. That is not at all what it means. In their culture, the phrase son of God was used because it means of the same nature. Why? As C.S. Lewis said, Cats beget cats, dogs beget dogs, and God begets God. If you are the son of God, you are nothing less than God because it's only of the same kind. So first of all, it ties in their nature. Second of all, they're relationally connected. I've already shared with you how my daughter being sick unravels my whole life. So for a son to die on the cross is intimately connected with a father. So son of God is actually a very appropriate term because the Trinity moved into a mode where one person of them shifted into a subservient role. When Jesus came down here, put a blindfold on theoretically and said, father, where do you want me to go? We all tracking? Let's go back. That never happened with angels. Or again, to which angel did he say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, firstborn does not in scripture mean born first. It means the one with honor. If you remember in the Old Testament, a lot of firstborn, the one that was chosen like Joseph, 
was last. And they went out of order. In the same way, Jesus was not the firstborn in that sense, but he was the firstborn in another sense. When he is brought back into the world as the victorious second coming of Christ, as the mighty victor king, things change. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Listen, angels worship Jesus. We don't worship angels. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God. Stop. What did he just say? He just called the sun who? God. God called the sun God. That's a big deal. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What does that mean? It's all references to the fact that the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of King David and be a better ruler. Let me tie that in. I was just doing some reading this week in a book called To Everyone a Reason. It's a book on apologetics. It's a collection of articles about the nature of God. In that, I was reading an article by Ben Witherington III, which sounds super stuffy. I'm sure he's a nice guy, though. And he wrote a brilliant article on the names that Jesus took on. And one of the names that Jesus took on, the most popular name, Jesus's favorite name that he used for himself was not son of God. It was son of man. And I always tripped over that and said, why did you keep using that phrase? Why not use son of God? It's cooler. And he took son of man. Why? For this very reason that we were just talking about in Hebrews, because son of man is a term that is used from Daniel chapter seven. We all know Daniel chapter 7 because it's the freaky passage that talks about and this beast rose up out of the ground and it had big nasty teeth and it crushed people and then this beast rose up and then came the anointed one. All right. Jesus loved that passage because it talked about how all the kingdoms of the world that were human crushed and hurt people but then would come an anointed one that would treat people with compassion and kindness. Jesus said, I like that title. I'm going to use that one. I'm the new kind of ruler. I took on humanity and I change everything. If you want to know what God in heaven is like, you can look at Jesus. What does that mean? It means there is no allowance, absolutely no allowance in scripture for a mean, nasty, vengeful, horrible God. Because that's not how Jesus was. He's the exact representation of God's nature. How did Jesus treat people? Then guess what? That's how God feels about you. That's pretty awesome. Yeah? Let's finish it out. It says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus was now called Lord. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. When is that going to happen? We studied Revelation, you know. After this age begins to close up, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. After that portion, eternity kicks off. 
And John said, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down. Meaning Jesus can refashion existence and reality anytime he wants, but he is unchangeable and unmovable. That's a big deal. It says, but you are the same and your years will have no end. To which of the angels, once again, Jesus is better than the angels, better than the angels, better than the angels. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The idea of making a footstool is two things. One, servants did that. God is saying, hold on, Jesus, I'll get this one for you. That's a big deal. The other way is it talks about the Eastern view of putting your foot on the necks of defeated kings. And he said, Jesus, hold on, I will crush all your enemies for you. Are angels not all just ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Isn't the job of an angel to take care of God's stuff? The son is better than that. He runs God's stuff. And here's the key. Chapter 2, verse 1. You ready? Here's my close. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, meaning the Old Testament law with Moses, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, if they got busted in the Old Testament for stuff, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation in Christ? You will be held accountable for that as well. Here's why it's important. It says in light of Jesus being God, in light of all that he has done for us, in light of the new age that he has allowed to come into us, in light of the fact that we are new creations in Christ, we better pay attention and lock in. Those words there that were used for don't drift away, pay close attention, those are nautical words used of ships. And it meant this, we better lock into an anchor or we're going to drift and miss the harbor. Why is that important? Because it matters in this church. I am not so much worried about people in this church. You are very knowledgeable. I'm not as worried about people in this church just deciding to give up their faith and become an atheist tomorrow. It's the drifting. It's the, hey, I didn't even realize the boat moved. That's weird. Wasn't land right there? It's the day-to-day -day incremental. Satan knows that there's very little benefit in going with you, going against you head-to-head -head because you'll panic and, grind and lock in with Jesus. But if he can convince you that it's not a big deal, he wins. It says in the Old Testament they were busted for two things, transgression and disobedience. Check this out. The word transgression means crossing a line. Indeed, some of us need to get busted because we cross a line. We know it's wrong, but we cross the line. The next word, though, applies to us even more. The word for disobedience means it's used of a man who can't hear very well. You go, what does that mean? It means two things. Either you're no longer listening because it's not important, or you've hardened your heart and you can't hear anymore. This is the year of faithfulness. Are we making any changes? Are we listening anymore? Or is it not a big deal to us? Have we not locked in in faithfulness? And have we allowed ourselves to drift? All our commitments begin to fall away. 
our word means nothing. Our commitment to Jesus is only when we feel good about it. Our attendance in his presence is optional. It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What does that mean? It means the word and message that you have heard about Jesus Christ is legit. That's what it means. And it means we better take it seriously. We better live as if it's right and make life change accordingly. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a beautiful walk through your word. And we ask that you would continue to bring it alive to us. That, Lord, we want to know it. We want to own it. We want to be it. We want to be the people that you designed us to be. Lord, I was just talking to you this morning on the drive-in. And in some ways, I'm so embarrassed about how I have handled the great gifts that you have given me and the great salvation that you have given. And I just pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful men and women, that you would change how we live and act and think and move, that we might be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.